Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Amen. We have our scripture reading now, and it happens to be Cheryl. Cheryl's our reader this week. She'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 9. We're reading from Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28. Hebrews 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. All right. We're going to get right into the word as you're uh, making sure you're situated and you got your app open or your Bible open. Just wanted to wish a happy grandparents' day to any grandparents. I just put that, I saw that on my calendar this morning. I said, huh, look at that. Huh. So happy grandparents' day to any of you who are grandparents. Uh, let's ask for the Lord's help with uh, this passage. Lord, as with all of uh, Scripture, and especially with Hebrews, we do need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to help us understand, help us connect the pieces, help us see the threads that are all you're pulling together here, and to understand from, from this angle. That it's, it's the universal gospel. It's what, it's what you've done, this message that goes from cover to cover, but from, in a different way here in Hebrews. Um, and so as we look at it through the lens of the Old Covenant, we pray that you'd help us to understand, uh, give us clarity in our minds and soft hearts to be able to apply what you have for us today. 
This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with, a, with, with what is, for many people, a, a familiar story. It's a familiar story from the Old Testament. I want to start with, uh, by recounting to you the, the story of the golden calf. The golden calf. Uh, it's found in Exodus chapter 32. You're welcome to turn to Exodus 32 if you care to do so. Uh, but I'm, I'm just going to summarize it here and tell you about it. Uh, as chapter 32 opens in Exodus, uh, Moses has been missing. Uh, he's been missing for 40 days, 4-0, 40 days. And uh, I say he was missing, but that's not exactly right. They knew where he was, right? He was, he was up on Mount Sinai. They'd watched him go up there. Uh, but at this point, he'd been gone for almost six weeks, and uh, they didn't know when he was coming back or even if he was coming back. And so the folks below were getting nervous and impatient. And, and so, like I say, it's a familiar story for many. Uh, they basically, I don't know how they thought this was going to help, but they decided they would make a god, they would make themselves a god. And so a bunch of the people uh, gathered their jewelry, earrings and bracelets and that sort of thing, gold jewelry, and they brought it to Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, kind of second in command, as it were. And Aaron took this gold, melted it down, and he made from it an idol. He made a golden calf, this, this statue of, of, a, of a young bull. And when it was done, uh, Aaron brought it out, he presented it to the people, and the people loved it. They loved it. Verse 6 of Exodus 32 says, uh, The people rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to the golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and then they drink, to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. Basically, they had a big ecstatic party uh, in celebration of their new God. And that's all very shocking, right? When we, we read that part of the story, it's such a, a difficult story when you, when you think about it. But what I really want to focus on is, is what happened next. And what happened next, it's, it's told in verses 7 through 14, is, is this, the scene kind of shifts from what's happening down below to what's happening up on the mountain with Moses and God. And, and the Lord says to Moses, uh, we've got to go down now. You've got to go down now because the people have sinned against me. And, and he very quickly says they've They've built themselves a calf, and they've fashioned themselves a calf, and they're worshiping it now, and so you have to go down. And he tells Moses, he says, I'm going to destroy them. I've seen these people. They're stiff-necked. They're a stubborn, rebellious people. I'm going to destroy them now, Moses, and I'm going to replace them with you. I'm going to build a whole new nation with you, Moses. And, you know, I don't know, Moses may have been tempted to be kind of like, yeah, sounds like a good idea to me. But no, that's not what Moses said. What Moses does is he basically begins to, almost like Abraham with, with Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he begins to, to give God reasons. He, he begins to present to God reasons that God shouldn't do what he's just said he'd like to do. And he, he reminds the Lord of, of how the Lord had delivered these people. These are your people, he says. These are your people, Lord. You chose them for yourself, and, and you, you called them to yourself, and, and you made promises to them. You made promises to their ancestors, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Moses for about four or five verses there in, in, in chapter 32. Moses reminds the Lord of, of these promises and gives him reasons to to not destroy the people. And then you, you read this, verse 14 is so important. It says, and the Lord relented. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. There's a word for what Moses does there. There's a word for it, and the word is mediate. Moses mediates between God and the people of Israel. He comes between them, and that's what mediate means. <clears throat> to mediate means to stand between two parties who are estranged from each other and to bring them together. 
And that is what Moses did. Uh, the Israelites had just utterly estranged themselves from the Lord by making this idol and worshiping it, so, especially so soon after what he had just done for them in, in delivering them out of Egypt. They, they, they do this, and, and so there's this break in the relationship, and Moses mediates. And in his mediation, he saves them from judgment. Right? God says, I'm going to go down, we're, you're going to go down, and I'm going to destroy them. Moses mediates and saves them from judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Right? Jesus is the mediator. And that, that's where, where today's passage, where we pick up in verse 15, that's how it begins. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And the reason I start with Moses and the golden calf is that I think it really does give us a really good picture of what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is thinking about when he makes this statement that Jesus is our mediator. Because Jesus does the same thing. He did the same thing that Moses did. Jesus stood between humans who deserved judgment, that's us, and a God who had every reason to judge them. Just like Exodus 32. Jesus stood between the two and brought them together. Except, like everything else we've seen in Hebrews, Jesus did it even better. Jesus did it better, right? And that's what the, the title of my sermon this morning and, and the focus of this passage. Jesus is the mediator, but he's the better mediator. He's the better mediator of a better covenant. You can see how all these things we've been looking at, if you've been here, stack up on each other. We have a better priest who initiates a better covenant, making him the better mediator of this better covenant. Uh, if you have been here, you, you, uh, you know from the last few weeks that this part of Hebrews that we've been in since we've returned to it in August, uh, this part of Hebrews is really the core of the book. I think this chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 are, are really the heart of the book because this is where the author lays out for us how Jesus saves us. So this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel being presented in the book of Hebrews. And again, if you've been here, you've also heard me say that this author, is, is, he has kind of a bigger agenda than just teaching us. So yes, he's teaching us. He wants us to understand the connection of the new covenant to the old covenant. But then he also has a, a motivational purpose. He's trying to, uh, he, he is motivating us uh, to hold on to Jesus. And so this whole book is about encouraging us to hold on, encouraging our faith. And the way he's doing it here in this middle part where he's presenting us the gospel is, is that he's showing us how Jesus is worth any sacrifice. That's this idea of enduring. He's worth any sacrifice that we might need to make to follow him. He's worth it. And, and what we're getting here is different reasons. Like, look at this that Jesus did for us. Look for this that Jesus Look at this he did. And these are all different reasons he's worth uh, holding on to. And, and the reason we look at today, the reason I want to focus on today, is, is reconciling. He's worth any sacrifice because he reconciles us. He mediates. That's what a mediator does. He reconciles us to God. That's what Jesus does. And what's more, this reconciliation, this bringing us back to God that Jesus does here, his reconciliation is permanent, right? That's what makes it better, or one of the many things that makes it better. Uh, the the, the, the uh, reconciliation Moses did in Exodus 32 was temporary, right? Read a few more chapters, and they're at it again. But, but the, 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 mo- the, the, re- the reconciliation that Jesus does is permanent. It's lasting. And that's actually the next part of the outline, kind of a two-part outline this morning. He's worth any sacrifice because he gives us an eternal future. In reconciling us to God, his is a better reconciliation because, and as a, flow, as a consequence of that flowing out of that, we have an eternal future waiting for us in heaven. That's a big part of this morning's passage too. 
And, and he talks about that in verse 15 as well, right? And so verse 15, he says that uh, he's the mediator of a new covenant, and then he gives the purpose statement. So that those who are called, that's believers, though that's the called, those who are called believers may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's, that's this eternal future. We have an eternal future with God in heaven because of Jesus. Uh, we're going to finish uh, chapter 9 this morning, uh, so we'll be into chapter 10 next week. And as we work through the second half of the chapter, I, I want to show you three actions. I think that's the best way. I've worked on this passage a long time this week. I think that's the simplest way to outline this passage. There are three actions Jesus takes as our mediator, and we have this eternal future because he does these three things for us. So these are three actions that our mediator takes on our behalf. As he, in, in, in his office of mediator. So three actions Jesus takes. Let's, um, let's look at the text. Let's look at these three things. So action number one, the first action Jesus takes is something he did in the past. So we actually have a past, a present, and a future in today's outline. The first one is something that already happened, and it's quite simply that he died for us. Jesus died for us. That's where it all begins. The heart of the gospel is this simple, beautiful fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And that is the focus of verses 15 through 22. So if you look at that paragraph, it's kind of a lengthy paragraph in most Bibles. Um, there's a lot there, and I'm going to unpack a lot of it, maybe not all of it, but I'm going to try to show where, how it all fits together. But really what that paragraph summarizes down to, if you like, like to outline things, you could just write, Jesus died for us. That's the, the three-word summary of, of verses 15 through 22. Uh, let, let's look at verse 15. I want to read... Um, I'll read the whole verse now. I've read pieces of it, but let's hear the whole verse. It says, therefore, flowing out of all the stuff we talked about last week, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Then he makes this statement, since a death has occurred. Here's how it happened. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, check. Uh, the result is that we'll have a future with him in heaven, check, right? For the second part of the verse. Uh, that's this eternal future. The next part is that this is possible. The reason this is possible is that there's been a death. A death has occurred, the author says. And what we're talking about specifically is the death of Jesus. That He doesn't say that. I don't know. If you, all you had was verse 15, you might not know that. But in context, it's very clear he's talking about the death of Jesus. So he's the better mediator because he died a better death. All right, so we're talking about his death, the death of Jesus. The reason it's his death is better is that it redeems. So you see how the rest of that verse. His is a death that redeems them, the called, I think is, is who he's talking about there, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So here's what I think that means. Uh, it's, it's, you have to go back to the stuff we've looked at in the last two chapters. So you've got your old covenant. Right? Remember the old covenant, chapter 7, chapter 8, the old covenant was a covenant of works. The old covenant was a covenant of law, a covenant of works. Uh, you had to obey God's law to be redeemed under the old covenant. And that included his moral law and then also the, the sacrificial law, all of that stuff. So, you have, so the first covenant, old covenant, is a covenant of, of works. But what was the big problem with the first covenant? The problem was us. We talked about that two or three weeks ago. The problem was us. We're not able to obey. And so our transgressions... The transgressions we committed under the first covenant were not covered. 
They weren't, they weren't dealt with in a permanent way, right? They weren't dealt with in a lasting way. This verse 15, end of verse 15 says, his death does. So the death of animals, bulls and goats, as he said several times now, wasn't fully sufficient, wasn't sufficient, but the death of Jesus is. His is able to redeem the transgressions that the first covenant really couldn't touch in any kind of permanent, lasting way. The new covenant does what the old covenant could not do. Jesus redeems us. The next two verses, right, so verses uh, 16 and 17, uh, give us a, a, a key principle for, for covenants, right? And it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to explain why Jesus needed to die. And the principle is that a covenant, and God, every, all of God's transactions are through covenants, uh, a covenant requires a death. Somebody's got to die. Somebody or something has to die for a covenant to take place. That's the key principle that's established in verses 16 and 17. Now, before I read those verses, I've got to take a little, it's going to feel like a detour, but it's just explanatory, but I have to explain this. And I have to tell you specifically about uh, the words the author uses in verses 16 and 17. So most English translations uh, will talk about a will in this passage, right? And you heard about it where where Cheryl read it a minute ago. Um, Verse 16, for where a will is involved. Verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death. Uh, In English, a will is a legal document in which people describe how they want their property dealt with uh, when they die, right? You know, the last will and testament of somebody, their property, maybe there's a signing of um, responsibility for children, some of those kinds of things. But a will is a legal document in, in our understanding of what a will is. The thing you need to know, so maybe you've read these verses and that's where your brain went. When you heard will, that's where your brain went. You went to the last, you know, you're like, oh, I've been meaning to write my will, or yeah, I did that already, or whatever you've been thinking about. Um, here's, here's the thing you need to know. In Greek, which Hebrews is written in, Hebrews is written in Greek. In Greek, the word for a will is exactly the same word as the word for covenant. It's the same word. So we have two different words. We have will, that's a legal document. We have covenant, like the covenant of marriage, right? Those are two different things in English, but in Greek, it's the same word. And the word is diatheke, for those who like that kind of thing, diatheke. And for, so we know, if I say I wrote, I, I, I wrote my will, you know what I'm talking about. If I say I made a covenant of marriage with my wife, you know what I'm talking about. But in Greek, you, you need context. You've got to figure out from the surrounding verses whether the person means will, a legal document, or the person means covenant, like a, a biblical joining of, of two, two parties. Which means when you and I read verses 16 and 17, we actually have a decision to make. When the translators translated it from Greek to English, they had a decision they had to make. Uh, and you've got to decide which one it is <clears throat> the author is talking about. Um, I'm not going to go. You're, you're, I'm, I'm not going to go into the technical reasons. You're already like too late. You already did. Uh, but uh, but but uh, believe it or not, there's a more technical reasons to why I say this. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that the author does not want us to think about a legal will. He wants us still to think about a covenant. So that's how verses 16 and 17 should be translated. Uh, which is actually how the New, New American Standard tr- translates it. If you have an NAS, it actually says covenant, and you're out there right now feeling pretty smug. You're like, yeah, <laughs> my translation's got it right. Because um, I do think the NAS is right in this case. It, it, it is correct to translate it as covenant. Because that's how the word is translated in verse 15, verse 18, verse 19. They're all, di- they're all the same word. They're all diatheke. And there's really no good reason. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a reason for it. That's the part I'm not going to go into. There is the other side. But, but I think you should take it as a covenant. 
All of that affects how we translate and uh, interpret and read these two verses. So I'm going to read you verses 16 and 17, and I'm going to do something I very rarely do, which is I'm going to change it to say what I think it should say, like more like the NAS. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it, that is the death of the thing being sacrificed, right? For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. It's got to die. For a covenant takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So, a lot of explanation there, but what verses 16 and 17 boil down to is something has to die when there's a covenant. Something or somebody has to give their life. And I, I, that is a biblical principle. And if we had more time, we would, I could actually take you back into the Old Testament and we could look at it. I could show you the different covenants from the Old Testament. There's always some kind of a death, something or some, usually it's an animal. It's almost always animal sacrifices. You could look at the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant. Uh, you go right through. They all uh, involve a death, especially, and, and where you really see it is the example the author gives us. So now look at verses 18 through 22. And I'm not going to read those verses again just for time's sake, but in verses 18 through 22, the author just proves what I just told you about verses 16 and 17. So verses 16 and 17, he says something has to die for there to be a covenant. And then verses 18 through 22, he points at the old covenant and he says, see, look at all that blood, right? Everything had to be anointed with blood. There was blood here. There was blood on the tabernacle, blood on the people. It's in Exodus 24 is actually what he's describing. Moses took a big bowl of, of blood from an animal that had been sacrificed, and he literally, he dips a branch in it, and he starts spraying all the people with, with blood from the sacrificed animal. The old covenant was inaugurated. It was initiated in, in blood. Something had to die. And then all of that sets us up for Jesus, because, and this, he's not here to talk about the old covenant. He's here to talk about Jesus. And what he's saying is, he says all that to say, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He died for us. He died for us. And by dying for us, he became the better mediator. Because he's not an animal. He's the perfect son of God. Sinless, without, uh, without blemish. All of those things he told us back in chapter 7 and earlier in the book too. Uh, he, he died for us. That makes him the better mediator. We're going to move to action number two in just a second, but let me just put out, pull out three applications from that. So we just spent lots of time up here thinking about how that works. Let's think about it down here in terms of what it means to us. Three lessons. Number one, from the fact that Jesus died for us. Uh, the first is that we have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. Verse 22 says it. Without the shedding of blood, without a death, there's no forgiveness, the author says. But Jesus shed his blood. Right, that's his whole point. Jesus did shed his blood for us. Jesus did die for us. And that's why our sins are forgiven. It's not wishful thinking. It's because Jesus died for us. If we confess our sins to God and we ask him to forgive us, 1 John chapter 1, if we, if we, if we take that step and come to him by faith, he forgives us. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Such good news. You are not dirty. You are not dirty. You are not stained in the eyes of God. You are clean. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is that God loves us. It's a biblical lesson we draw from the fact that Jesus died for us. The death of Jesus shows that God loves us. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. And then he says that to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross 
for them and for us. There's no greater love than this one, Jesus says. That's how love works. Love in its purest form involves a sacrifice, Jesus says. And then he makes it personal in the next verse. He says, and you are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, if you follow me, he says, I love you. You're my friends. I hope you never doubt that God loves you, but if you do, just come back to this. Come back to this. You know for sure. We know for sure that God loves us because Jesus died for us. That's lesson two. And then the third lesson is that God also loves the world. This, this good news isn't just for us, right? We're, we're supposed to share it. It's, it's, it's for everybody. God sent his son into the world, right? John 3.16. Most of us can probably quote it. John 3.16. God sent his one and only son into the world to show his love, right? Because he loves us. And now Jesus sends us, right? I mentioned before to Paul that there are, uh, each gospel has a form of the Great Commission. There's one in John. It's John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. Right, so the Father, chapter 3, the Father sends Jesus because he loves the world. John, chapter 20, Jesus says, now I send you. And so we're sent to bring the, the, the good news that Jesus died for us and that he loves us. If you need a reason, if you need a reason to invest a Saturday morning learning how to share your faith on, on September 23rd, this is a really good one. I know it's a busy time of year. Believe me, I know. Uh, but this is too good. This is too good to just keep it to ourselves. We, we, we need to tell people that Jesus died for them and that he loves them too. So that's action number one. Jesus died for us and all the wonderful things that that means. Number two, action number two uh, is, is something Jesus uh, has started in the past and is still doing in the present, right? So he's doing it in us now and it's that he purifies us. Jesus purifies us. That's the, the focus. That's what we see in, in verses 23 through 26. He's our better mediator because he purifies us. So the author says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be, and he's referring back to earlier in the chapter, in a minute we'll we'll talk about that, Uh, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the rites of the old covenant, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters uh, the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So first half of chapter 9 was about the tabernacle, and we, we talked a, a little bit last week about the, the layout of the tabernacle, the sacrifices that were made there. We kind of took our cue from the author and only talked about it a little and moved on to the real point. And the real point we talked about is that it was symbolic. That was the most important thing we learned about the tabernacle last week. The tabernacle was symbolic, and the author says that in verse 9. It was symbolic for the present age. Chapter 9, verse 9. Verse 23 picks up on that, right? So we had that statement about the symbolism of the tabernacle in verse 9. Verse 23 grabs that, and it reminds us, the tabernacle system was a copy. It was just a copy, he says. It was a copy of heavenly things. And these earthly copies, that's why they had to be purified. They had to be purified, verse 21. He talks about the blood that had to be sprinkled on them. Because they were earthly, they had to be purified. 
Now, you and I, we see the word copy, and we, we immediately realize that there's something that the copy refers to, right? And that's what the word means, right? It, when you see the word copy, you know somewhere there's an original, right? Somewhere there's an original, right? You can buy copies of famous works of art. You know, for 40 bucks, you can get a picture of the Mona Lisa and put it in your office but it's, or your home. But it's a copy, right? It's a copy. It's not the real thing. Um, that, and that, because that's what a copy is. It's, there's, it means there's an original someplace else. And that's what he's saying here, right? He's saying that there, these earthly copies, the tabernacle system, all of that, there's a corresponding reality, and it's the reality. There's a corresponding reality in heaven, and that's what Jesus' sacrifice affects, right? His sacrifice uh, transforms, it affects the reality, Right? Why? Because his work wasn't symbolic like the old covenant was. His work is real. That, that's the argument that's being made here. His, his work is real. So the priests made symbolic sacrifices in a symbolic tabernacle or a symbolic temple, but what Jesus did was real. And, and you see where he says that. It's verse 24. He, did, he entered not into holy places made with hands. Right? The tabernacle was built with human hands. Uh, those are just copies of the true things. That's all the, the tabernacle. Jesus didn't go to the symbolic places. He went to heaven. His work affects heaven. Now, there's a question that gets raised here, and again, it's kind of a little bit of a... It's not central to the argument, but it's a question I know people have. Uh, you are probably wondering right now, or maybe you're wondering, if this all means there is a literal temple in heaven. Is there a literal temple in heaven? Is, is that, that what this is saying? There's a literal temple with a literal lampstand and a literal, you know, the literal walls and table of bread, the bread, bread table and all the rest of that stuff. And, and another question that kind of flows right out of that one is, if there's a literal temple in heaven, does that mean Jesus poured his own literal blood? Did Jesus take his blood after the cross? Did Jesus take his blood into this tabernacle in heaven? Did he go into the inner room? Did he find the heavens uh, original of the Ark of the Covenant and pour his blood on the mercy seat there? Is that what this text is saying? My own answer, and I gave this some thought this week, my own answer is probably not. Probably not. I will say I think it's possible. And, uh, you know, you got to be humble when you interpret Scripture because there's always people you love and respect who take it the other way. Uh, there are lots of scholars and interpreters who, who believe exactly that, who think that there's an actual temple in heaven where all of these things exist. Um, on the other hand, I'll kind of give you my own take. On the other hand, you can make a pretty strong case that the, the tabernacle, that what he's saying is that the tabernacle is a tangible earthly symbol, right? It's, it, it, you can touch it and feel it. He's saying it's, an in, it's a tangible earthly symbol of intangible heavenly realities. And, 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 and you almost, if you look at the individual pieces, it begins to make sense. I mean, look at how we talk about these things. You know, the lampstand, the lampstand in the tabernacle on earth symbolizes the reality of God's truth, right? The lampstand on earth doesn't symbolize the lampstand in heaven, it symbolizes the reality of God's truth and the light of the gospel that's going to go forth from, from there. Uh, the bread, the table, the table of bread with those 12 loaves on it, it symbolizes a reality, right? A heavenly, intangible reality. In that case, it's God's presence, right? You don't need a, a bread, you don't need a table with bread on it in heaven. You've got to represent God's presence. You've got God's presence in heaven. So the table of bread symbolizes the reality of God's intangible presence. And you go through with all those. The curtain, it works that way with the curtain. The curtain uh, symbolizes 
separation from God. It doesn't symbolize another curtain. The altar of incense, we're actually told this in Revelation, I think it's Revelation 5, that there's this altar in heaven that, that has the prayers of God's people, right? These bowls of, of, of the prayers of God's people. The altar of incense symbolizes uh, the prayers and, and worship of God's people. And, and so there's that piece of it. So I would, I guess I, my own position is that the, there's, uh, that the tabernacle on earth symbolizes those intangible aspects of, of the truth. And then that also, I think, helps, the other question actually helps with, did, did Jesus sacrifice his own blood in heaven? Uh, and personally, I think that one is actually easier and informs the way I answer the first part. I, I think the answer is pretty clearly no. No, Jesus didn't have to go into heaven and make a sacrifice of his own blood. It's because of what he says, right? On the cross, he says, it's finished. He doesn't say it's almost finished, right? He doesn't say, you know, one more thing after this where I'm, I'm going to bring, you know, the blood into the, the altar in heaven. No, he, he says it's finished. And then as verification that it's finished on the cross and not sometime later, the, the curtain is torn, right? God reaches down and grabs this huge, thick curtain and he tears it apart, Right? The, the temple that separated the inner and the outer uh, rooms in the, in the temple, he tears it at the moment Jesus died. That's when the, his, his blood is, is uh, poured, as it were, on what the mercy seat represented in, in, that, in, in heaven. Right? And so that's, that's the idea. That, that's how I would argue it. But here's the thing. You could completely disagree with everything I just said in the last three minutes, and it doesn't matter because the point the author is making is still the same. The point the author is making is that the new covenant is way better than the old covenant. Right? If there is a tabernacle in heaven, a physical one, and, and it, this one down here is a pale comparison of it all, it still works out the same way. The new covenant works. I used that language last week. The new covenant works. Why? Because the new covenant dealt with the reality, whereas the old covenant merely dealt in symbols. It just dealt in symbols. And that's why the sacrifice of Jesus doesn't need to be repeated. In fact, it cannot be repeated. You can't sacrifice him again. He's already dealt with it. He's already symbols are, are, are symbols because they need to be repeated. Right? That, that's, that's how that works. But, but what Jesus did was, was for real. It was for once and for all. Again, all of which is to say, lots there, but it all boils down to he purifies us. He purifies us. He died for us, and then he takes away our sins. That, and that, the key there is, and where it's where the author summarizes it, it's verse 26, uh, he, um, he put away sin, right? He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away means to annul or abolish or cancel something. That's what Jesus did. He canceled. He canceled the power of sin. And you say, where does that apply to us? Well, it's, it's, it's this present going work. So you think about, we, it's two, two, two theological terms we use. The first is, is justification. Justification, right? When we put our faith in Jesus, Paul says, we are justified. We're declared righteous. That's what that word means. We're declared righteous in God's eyes. And here's the thing, it's real. Because we're under the new covenant, it's real. Right? Sometimes, we, sometimes people will get in our heads that justification is kind of a legal fiction. You know, we're still really guilty, but God just pretends we're innocent. That's not the gospel. The new covenant gospel is that we are innocent. We are innocent. We're clean. We're purified before God because of what Jesus did for us, because what he did for us was real. It wasn't symbolic. It was real. And then, you know, so you got your justification and then that ongoing process. Here's the present part. That ongoing process, we call it sanctification. 
that's what he's doing now, right? Why hasn't he taken you home to heaven then? Well, because he's sanctifying. He's doing the ongoing work of purifying you and me. And with every day that passes, uh, he's doing it a little bit more. And it all comes back to the efficacy, the, the, the fact that it works because he did it for real. So he, he died for us and he purifies us. That's, that's the second part. Finally, the third action, it's a future one. It's the one Jesus is going to do in the future that pulls it all together. And it's that he's coming back. He will return for us. It's such a crucial central doctrine. And here it is. You know, when I started this passage, I didn't realize I was going to be talking about the second coming, but there it is. It has to be talked about. Verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So verse 27 is one of those verses uh, preachers love to quote, especially when they're presenting the gospel, because it's a great verse to say, hey, you just get one chance. You only get one chance, you get one life, right? That's how we usually apply verse, seven, verse 27. Every human gets to live one life, then we have one death, and then that's it. No do-overs, no cyclical second chances, none of that. You live, you die, and then you're judged. That's verse 27. And that application of verse 27 is true. Right? If anybody hears these words, you're holding out hope for some second chance after you die. Bible's so clear on that one. Some things aren't clear, but this one's so, so clear. We get one chance, one life to follow Jesus. And so there's a warning aspect to the, the truth of what verse 27 says. But can I tell you, the author isn't using it that way. <laughs> it's, verse 27 isn't a warning as far as the author of Hebrews is concerned. It's just a setup for what he wants to finish with with Jesus, which is, he, he then says in verse 28, including Jesus. All right, so it's appointed for a man once to die and then comes the judgment, including Jesus. Jesus lived one life, he died one death, and then he faced judgment. All right, so Jesus died once, just like us, and Jesus was judged just like us, except the big difference, the difference between his judgment and our judgment is that he had no sin to judge, right? He had no sin of his own to be judged. That's why it's so essential that Jesus is understood to be sinless. And so when he is judged, right, and his actually comes with his death, not after his death, because he's, he's God, uh, but he, he, when he's judged, he's found totally sufficient. And so instead, whose sin is he judged for? Mine and yours. He's just, and it says that in verse 28. He was offered to bear the sins of many. The called. I think we'd pull in the called here from verse 15. He was, he, he was offered to bear the sins of the called. And so he did it already. Right? So what's he saying in verses 27 and 28? He's reiterating his point that there's nothing else to do. He's done all that can be done. Right? You, it, now it's just for you and I to respond to the Holy Spirit and say yes and receive, uh, receive him. Right? That's all that's left. The only part that, that's left, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for him to come back. And that's what he ends with, right? He will appear. He will appear a second time. Do you know, Moses never came back for anybody. Right, we keep talking about Jesus as the better mediator. Moses never, there was no expectation in Judaism that Moses was going to come back. Right, they were waiting for a prophet like Moses, but there's no expectation that Moses was going to come back. But Jesus is coming back. He will appear a second time. And when he does, the author again stresses this too. This time he's coming for us in a good way. He's coming for us. Uh, the first time he came was to deal with sin, but not the second time. And he says that, right? He's not coming back to deal with sin the second time. He already dealt with sin. That was the first time. This time he's coming to, to take us to himself, to bring us 
to, to himself, to that glorious future, that promised eternal inheritance that he introduced to us back in verse 15, that, that future, eternal future with Jesus. A pastor uh, named Daniel Henderson, I used to read some of his stuff. Henderson uh, tells a story that I want to close with. It's a story about an older couple uh, who lived in Florida. So they were grandparents, grandparents living down in Florida, and they lived in the general Orlando area. They were about 40 miles from Orlando. And one day, this couple decided that they would surprise their granddaughter. She, and their granddaughter was eight years old at the time. They decided they would surprise their eight-year-old granddaughter with a day at Disney World. And she lived in the same area. She didn't live with them, but she lived nearby. And uh, they, they got her parents' permission, got the whole thing set up. And, and so the parents were in on the plan. And so the day arrived. They'd picked out. She had the day off from, from school for some reason. They arrived uh, to pick her up. And it was in the morning. They wanted to make the most of the day. And again, mom and dad knew where, where she was going to be all day, but she didn't know. It was a surprise. They kept from her where, that they were going to go to Disney, plan, uh, Disney World. And so they, they pick her up, they get in the car, and uh, as they started to drive, uh, they said, well, let's get some breakfast. And so they pull into a McDonald's to you know, get some Egg McMuffins, that kind of thing. And uh, Grandpa pulled into the, to the drive-thru. He pulled into the drive-thru. But uh, this McDonald's was one of those McDonald's with the, the Playland. You ever see those with the, the, the elaborate Playland? And they always give it big glass windows so all the kids can see and, and, and beg to go. And, um, and, and, and she saw it. And so they're waiting in the, in the drive-thru, and the little girl saw the Playland, and she said, Grandpa, can we, can we go inside? Can, can we eat inside? I want to play. <laughs> I want to play in the Playland. But Grandpa knew the plan. He, he knew what was in store. And so he, he said, you know, kind of, from her perspective, quite unreasonably, he said, no, I'm sorry, sweetheart, we're, we're just going to do the drive-thru today. We don't, have, we don't have time for the Playland. Well, she was not happy. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, it did not turn into a tantrum, but, but she fussed and, and complained, and uh, there may have even been an accusation that they never let her do anything fun, and that kind of thing. But Grandpa held his ground, and they got the Egg McMuffins, and they continued on their trip. About half an hour later, uh, Grandma made an announcement. She said she needed to use the restroom. And this was all prearranged because when she said this, Grandpa pointed at a sign. The sign was the indicator. He pointed at a sign and he said, well, look at that. There's the sign for Disney World. Why, why don't we pull off here? I'll bet they have restrooms at Disney World. And he, he got off the exit and got in line there. A minute or two passed, and the, the little girl piped up from the back in kind of a sheepish voice. She said, Grandpa, now that we're here at Disney World, do, do you think we could go inside for a little while? <laughs> and he replied, of course we can. That's where we were headed all along. Sometimes you and I are just like that little girl. We're just like her. We want to settle for the lesser pleasures because we don't understand what God has planned. We don't appreciate how good it is. What I read in verse 15, what I read in verse 28, we don't appreciate how good it is to have an eternal future in heaven. And so God gives us books like Hebrews, right? The whole scriptures, in fact, uh, to help us appreciate, to understand, and to hold on, to hold on to him, no matter what, what challenges and difficulties come our way. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much. For, uh, for this passage. It's complex, but the encouragements are rich, and we thank you for um, helping us today. Uh, and uh, as we walk out of here, Lord, whatever little pieces of confusion are muddled in our brains, would you please either clear them up or sweep them to the side and leave only uh, the pure gospel and the good news of, oh, this wonderful truth that you died for, that Jesus died for us, 
that he purifies us, and that someday, perhaps soon, he's coming to take us home. And we, we cling to that. Build us up, Lord. Build up our faith. Different ones in this room, some, some things are going smoothly right now, but others are facing tremendous challenges. Uh, wherever we're at with that, would you please uh, strengthen our faith, fortify our foundations, that we might stand all the more firmly on the solid rock of Jesus. And it's in his glorious and, and wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen.